Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. So I read this week, reread C.S. Lewis's essay called The Inner Ring. So in it, he describes our deepest desire to belong, to be in, in anything. Uh, You can feel on the outs just because two or three of your friends have a conversation and you're not in it, let alone feel rejected or, or something from your home. Maybe your home, you came from a broken home and one of your parents you never really felt the love from. It could be anything, small or big. But here's what C.S. Lewis writes in the essay. I believe all men between infancy and old age are dominated by the desire to be inside the local ring or society. Not only do they desire to be inside the local ring, they're dominated by the terror of being left outside. And so he argues that one of the permanent mainsprings of our life, uh, of our human action, is based on this desire to belong. So life is made up of insiders and outsiders. And in our sinfulness, when we're feeling those feelings of superiority or inferiority, security or insecurity, uh, And the joy, knowing the joy of being in or the joy of being out. He says, the inner ring exists for exclusion. The invisible line we have has no meaning unless most people were on the wrong side of it. Exclusion is no accident. It is the essence So he's basically saying, there's nothing more dreadful in the world than to be thrust out into the cold, left out of some inner circle. And he says, if you've been tried by an inner ring and left out or rejected, there's no worse feeling in the world. He told a graduating class at Cambridge University that no greater temptation would face them than the urge to create an inner ring of community that was special because it excluded others. That's a very powerful statement. Now, when you think about that, you think about all of our longings at the deepest level for love, acceptance, safety, security, belonging. Uh, Scripture says that these are deep-rooted in the way God made you. And, and when we were separated from God, uh, things broke loose. And we looked for any way that we could find identity and belonging. And we found superiority in seeing others outside of whatever group we were in. And over the course of our lives, 
Who knows how much damage we've done to people because of our superiority or inferiority being in or out? Well, Paul is trying to get at the bottom of that in Ephesians, this whole who's in and who's out thing. And in Ephesians chapter 2, which we looked at last week, we see Paul say uh, to the Gentiles, because the church is, is Jew and Gentile. By the way, we say Jew and Gentile. You say, what does that have to do with the church? Listen, that's every race. Do you know that? Jew and Gentile, that's every race coming together and forming the church. So the Jews and the Gentiles, here's what he says about the Gentiles. The, Je- the Jews were closer to God because they were covenant people and they had promises and they had laws and things that God had given them in their theocracy in the Old Testament. The Gentiles were sort of on the outs. And, the, and God had hoped that Israel would help bring the Gentiles in with this special stuff that they had. But instead they used it to create one of those walls. And he he says to the Gentiles, that's you and me. This is where where you were on the outs. Without Messiah, alienated from citizenship of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. It's like the the worst possible condition. It really, it gets right at the center of every human being's problem. Without God in the world, you'll never, ever ultimately find a sense of belonging or security or love or safety. There'll always be some group you're not in or superiority, some superior group, group you feel inferior to, and you'll always battle it, and you'll always do damage because of the feeling. That's how sin works. And so uh, these These ideas here are very powerful. If you come from the wrong race, or you come from the wrong place, or you don't have the right stuff, we become selfish and sinful and prideful. And so if you're God, you're like, how am I going to bring all this together? Not only is, is the world messed up because they're not connected to me, now they're just... They can't, even, you, they can't even relate to each other. It's all messed up. What do you do to fix that? You were watching some of the conversations of, of both parties after the, of all peoples, after the midterm elections. It was, we, we, we've got to come together. That's been the message since Genesis 3. We can't seem to do it. And yet, it's the inner desire of everyone and at every level. It doesn't matter what your opinions about reality are. At the deepest levels, we feel it. And so, what is God going to do? Well, he does two very, very radical things. In Christ Jesus, you who used to be far are brought near by the blood. First thing he's got to do is die. His death. Someone had to bear the burden, absorb the sin of mankind. Someone had to absorb it. Christ does it. Takes our sin. That's the first thing he does. But he does something else. Focused on that last week. 
So when he died, okay, notice what he did. He creates in himself a new man. He's got to do another thing because he can't just fix the problem in relationship to him. He's got to fix the problem in relation to everybody. You can't just fix one of those problems. You've got to fix both of the problems. And so in order to do that, you've got to create a new man. And this is, it's not a, it's, it's, it's better to say humanity here. Because when you read new man, it's very, very tempting to individualize that. That God's going to make you a new man or a new woman. Make a new man out of you, a new woman out of you. This is corporate language. This is the language of a group. This is a new humanity. What does that mean? I'm going to make a whole new race. I'm going to make a whole new society. <laughs> that is incredible. And we're going to see that he's really talking about the church here. He's going to bring everybody together in him. And when they're brought together in him, all the things that separated made us feel inferior or superior fade away. And they come together to form something unique. That's what we have here. There's little ones all over the world, churches, communities that come together to demonstrate a new humanity. How do you create a new humanity? He's going to bring, he's going to reconcile them into one body. There it is. Whatever the new man is, it's a new body. Body is a corporate image. Through the cross. That means when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just, like what Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 says, save you from your sin. He brought you together into a new kind of humanity that dictates how you live now. It's no longer your race. It's no longer your culture. It's no longer your, uh, where you're from what you look like. None of those things now deter are determined. Something else is that the cross creates. Now, what is it that he creates? And we're about to look at it closely. And it has incredible implications for who we are, how we act and how we function, what he has created. Now, in the next paragraph that we're about to read, this is how it sounds. Let me just read it out loud to you, just... Right here. It sounds like this. So then, you're no longer foreigners and non-citizens. You're fellow citizens with the saints. You're members of the household of God. Because you've been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and it grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God and the Spirit. That's what it sounds like. Whatever the new humanity is, the images in this passage articulate what that looks like and what it means for us. Now, I'm going to show you something here because there's a, there's a powerful wordplay going on in this text that is worth looking at. It's worth noticing. It's not necessarily apparent in English. But you can't help but see it when you're, when you're reading the New Testament, originally written in Greek. You look at the Greek text, 
And you can see there's a word play going on in this entire text from the word oikos, which means house or home. And I want you to just look at how many words in that short, brief, few, four verses. How many times that appears in the words? Aliens, God's household, built on, building, built together. That image. So whatever he's describing as a new humanity, there's a home for it. It's a home. It's God saying, come home. You've been far. You've been out. You haven't belonged. You haven't found security. You haven't found love. It's home. It's everything home is. Here's God saying, I've got to create a new home. I've got to create a new humanity in a new home. That new, hu- that new home is lived out in the church. It's absolutely essential to who you are. So in a sense, God is saying, I'm going to bring you home. You've been on the outs. I'm going to bring you home. And so in this text, we literally go from being homeless to being in a home to actually being a home. It's incredible what happens in these images in this passage. And so I think Paul wants us to know, do you know where home is? Of course, he's going to describe the church. And he's going to basically say, God says to you, make yourself at home. And then in a very surprising twist, he's going to say, you get to say to God, make yourself at home. Both. It's just, it's beautiful. So, what kind of home is it? What kind of home is it? Let's look at that. Okay, so then, you're no longer foreigners and non-citizens. This is our word where we get alien from, which means you're away from home. To be away from home. Now, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So, this first starts out with, this is not your condition anymore. I don't know how the world has sized you up. I don't know where it's put you. I don't know where you're from. I don't know what color your skin is. I don't know how you talk. I don't know what your cultural issues are, social, economic issues. They're all going to go away. You're not going to feel the profound loneliness that comes with being apart from God anymore. There's a profound, deep kind of loneliness that we all feel at the deepest level and we'll do anything to connect and feel like we're something or connect to something. And from that comes all of our sinful behavior when we're not having. God says, that's no longer true. You're not, this is a nowhere man who has become the new man. A nowhere man who has become the new man. What is the new man? What does it mean to be home? What does it mean to be home now? Well, here's what he says first. First of all, he says, here's the first image. Your fellow citizens. This is a Very political term. He says, you have a new country. You're from a new country. You're citizens of a country. You're citizens. You're from a new country. So the first thing about the new humanity is that you're from a new country. What does that mean? How do we operate as a church, as fellow citizens? Because we're supposed to see ourselves as fellow citizens. And And if we're a new humanity, then it's not America. What kind of citizens? Who are we? 
So that means your racial, national, political, social, cultural identity is brand new. This is, these are powerful forces in a person's life. They're powerful enough to make us hate other people groups simply because they're born somewhere else. These are powerful forces God, by the power of the gospel, has wiped out. And saying the gospel supersedes biology, geography, who you are by birth, things you can't even control. So that means, what it means is, what Paul is saying here, is I can no longer use any of those things that I get from being a citizen somewhere to, make, to feel superior to anyone else. And I can no longer make anyone feel inferior to me. And I'm going to tell you something else. Like you deny the essence of your faith and the gospel if you have any hatred or hostility in your heart toward any other people or group. That's what this is saying. In here, those things are gone. And the way we relate to the world, they're gone. Remember I shared with you, and this is why there's nothing like the church. Where else is that true? There's nothing like the church, this new humanity that he's created. Remember what I was telling you about Zuckerberg in the beginning of the summer? It was actually toward the end of summer I was telling you, but they had a summit, you know, Facebook had a summit, and he does his little speech, and he was saying, people aren't joining things anymore. Even the church is seeing down membership. And he made the comment that, hey, hey, we're trying to provide what those aren't providing anymore. And so some, some uh, Christian writers picked up on the idea that, hey, can Zuckerberg replace the church with Facebook? Is that possible? Is that what he's claiming to do? I don't think that's what he's claiming to do, but he's trying to say, hey, we're trying to connect people. And so he, you know how he connects people. You're on Facebook and he, he sees what you like and he sees what other people like and then he tries to get you guys connected because based on what you like. And I was telling you about that. And in our audience was a Lockheed uh, data scientist. I didn't know we had one of those. Did you know we had one of those? He comes up to me, he goes, I'm going to read that article. He re- reads the article, and here's what, he's tr- here's what he says about what Facebook's trying to do. They're trying to help you connect over the things that you share. Now, listen to how he describes this. It's fascinating. Mathematically, we calculate the things that you share. This is what, this is what data scientists do. Calculate the things that you share. Also, the degree to which you share them by first defining features of objects, like in Facebook's case, characteristics for people. Facebook obviously gathers people's characteristics by collecting information from their profile posts, interests, likes, click history. All of these characteristics can be represented mathematically, sometimes as easy as a 1 if a person is a male and a 0 if not. Too much more complicated, uh, to much more complicated scoring systems. But ultimately, each characteristic is defined as a number, and then all of the person's features can be stored as a mathematical vector. Vector. Did you hear that? You don't know what a vector is? I don't know what a vector is. Since it is easy to calculate the distance between vectors, 
We can now calculate the distance between people, and we often store the result set as the similarity matrix. There was a movie about that. I'm like, oh, this is getting better and better. The mathematical concept is that people should be connected because they are close, look, in distance. And they are only close in distance if they share the same characteristics. You see, this is how the world has to base unity. What about the people who aren't close in proximity? What about the people who aren't the same in those ways? What about that? That's what's killing us. And then he writes this, and I thought it was very astute. Paul simplifies the matrix to one thing, Jesus. If you know him, all of those other things don't matter. Doesn't matter what you like, what you don't like. Doesn't matter where you're from or how, how far you live or anything of those. They're all gone. Very powerful image. I was on the plane to India. And it was a man who was uh, uh, one of the stewards. I don't know, flight attendants, is that the way thing we say now? It was a flight attendant? Used to say steward. I don't know, flight attendant. He was walking around serving people in a costume, okay? That's what he was doing. And so uh, at the back of the plane, you know, you go stand back there every now and then because it's just too long of a flight, and I, I got to know him. My first impression of him was, what's this big, big, burly guy with a big old beard and big guy? I'm like, what's he doing on this plane? Anyway, in the back, you know, where, the, where they gather, you know, and get prepared, I'm standing back there, and we start a conversation. And, man, he's from Canada, because that's where we flew out of to India, and we're yakking, we're talking, and, and the conversation just keeps getting deeper and deeper, and I'm picking up clues that he might be a believer. I don't know. He's picking up the same clues, but we're not sure. And I decide, since we're... You know, I, I decided, you know, we just we're been in, we were in the Go Local series. I decide I got to figure out what to do. So I think this is a moment where I never do this. But in this moment, I said, well, you know, I'm a pastor. Because I wanted to see what his reaction was to that. This is literally what he did. He landed back on the, on the plane little wall. And he goes, I knew it. <laughs> he goes, I knew it. He goes, I am in love with Jesus. And I went, oh, my gosh, you big, burly lover of Jesus, you. And we started to talk, and I, I got to share with him what we're doing in India. He got to share with me his life. And pretty soon it didn't matter, eh, if he was from Canada or not. There was a connection immediately. We, all of a sudden, it didn't matter what his political views were, how he lived his life. He wasn't worried about how we do health insurance. He wasn't worried about any of that. He didn't get on me for any of that. We just talked about India and the values and priorities that, were, that we got there. And he said, man, you've got to email me. You've got to tell me about this trip. Gave me his card and his email. Because that's what Christ does. It doesn't matter where you're from, what your language is, your culture, barrier, how close you are. You could be anywhere. When I was in India, we met some people. Life-changing. I, I met a man that if you, if you met him, you would fall in love with him within 30 seconds. And you wouldn't believe what Christ has done in his life. He's not my skin color. He doesn't have my language. He doesn't speak. He doesn't know. Uh, he's got a, a strange accent. His upbringing completely different from mine. 
So it's not your identity. It's not your primary identity anymore. So it can't be the platform that you use to rise above others anymore. Nothing, nothing else dictates your allegiances or your priorities any more than the kingdom. You have kingdom priorities now because you're a citizen of a new country. Literally, when we gather together on a Sunday morning to the world, we're our own country. Different allegiances. I'm trying to help you see, Hillside, when you become a Christian, you're not just a little different. You're not just a little stronger. You are radically remade. And in here, we are a picture to the world of where all the political, social, all those issues go away. Racial, they're gone. It's a a great image. There's a second image, and it comes right after it. Let's see. It, it's, it's right here. Uh, members of God's household. So in, in, a, in a citizenship, you can, be, you can be far away from each other. Like he was in Canada. Uh, I met a man in India that loves God and it was an immediate connection that surpassed every other difference between us. But in the household now, now he's going to get us even closer together. We're not just from the same country spiritually. We live in the same house. That means the church is pictured as a house, a family unit. Hard to get more intimate than that. Now, what does that image mean for you and me here in this new humanity? Because, I mean, this is a whole new level of belonging and closeness. I mean, this deals with genetics and DNA. Not just location anymore. Because uh, in, in, a, in a home, it's, you know, it's where I, I can't wait to be. Home is where I'm most relaxed. Home is where things are laid out the way you know, I like them to be. Um, it's where I get my sense of security and identity and love. It defines me in the deepest ways. I learned from my family how to relate to people, how to go out on my own and accomplish things. The family unit is powerful. You might live in the same country, but here you share the same space. There's a great image in a book called Receiving Love. It was written in the mid-90s. It's still to this day a fantastic read on what it means to really actually receive the love of God. It's called Receiving Love. It's fantastic. Uh, anyway, he talks about uh, this line here. Close quarter observers. That's what we are to each other. If you live in the same house, you're close quarter observers. Don't you like that phrase? Close quarter observers. That means little privacy. Very little. It means our lives are open to it. Your life is out there to one another. That's how we're supposed to live, like a family. Our lives are out there a little bit. You know where I'm kind of lazy. Like at home, you know, when you're lazy and when you're dirty. You know you're dirty at home. In every sense of the word. Does he mean sexual? I don't know. You're dirty. In every way. You leave your, you leave your floss around. If people find it. What? Underwear. You're dirty. All right. Uh, 
You snack on stuff. You have little hidden snacks. That's who you are at home. Your life's just out there. Many years ago, my, my little Mikey, when he was 19, he was five years old at the time. He's 19 now. Oh, I'm sorry, he was in fifth grade. He had a buddy who lives across the street named Blake. Grew up with Mike. Uh, family still there. Their kids have grown up with our kids. Anyway, Blake was fifth grade. He's kind of a, he was shy, very quiet, very shy, always kind of looked down. Um, one day, uh, Gail popped out of the shower, didn't have any towels. She dumped a bunch of clean clothes on a couch out in the living room and ran out there naked to get him. And Blake had just popped, was just popping over to see Mike, happened to look in the window and saw it all. <laughs> and Gail didn't know it yet. Gail didn't know it. So she grabs the towel, goes back. He runs. He just ran home. <laughs> fifth grade, he's like, it's traumatizing to see your mom's friend naked when you're fifth grade. You're like, oh my God, I can't be friends with him anymore. <laughs> so, so he comes running. He, so, so finally he gets back tells Mike. Mike comes in, Mom, Blake saw you naked. What are you doing running around the house naked? <laughs> and Gail's like, oh, now, now two people in the world are mortified. <laughs> so eventually, a few days later, Blake finally gets up the nerve to come in the house, and now he's even more. He's not looking at it. He's doing this. <laughs> and he comes in, and he's doing this, and Gail sits him down. Gail confronts him. Blake, I know you think you saw me naked. But actually, I was wearing skin-colored pajamas. So I want to relieve you. You didn't see anything. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. To this day, he doesn't know what he saw. You can fool those on the outside. You can't fool those on the inside. She's buck naked. That's what she was. <laughs> and see, here's the thing that Paul is trying to get across if we're going to live at home. If we're going to live at home, we're going to see each other. We're going to be exposed to each other. If you're close enough, this is how you know you live close enough to, uh, if, if you're living really the home style that God is talking about here. Do people see you? Can people see you when you're not everything you ought to be? You're exposed every now and then? Because if you're never exposed, then, then, you, then you're not living the kind of home life God expects us to have in the body. You got to be close enough to be exposed, to be offended, and to, and to offend. Like if right now you have some hurt feelings, by the way, over the 25 years I've been here, the church has hurt me as, as, as much as anything I could tell you. And, truth be told, I've done a lot of hurt myself. You're not going to be close to people in here and that not happen. And here are all of our issues are challenged all the time, especially our prejudices where we've built new walls, where we feel superior, and where we make others feel inferior. Those walls are here. What group are you in and not in? Who are you friends with and not friends with? All the prejudices here. Most of us want to think we're not prejudiced. They, they arise in us. 
are, are, because of the ultimate break we had with God and our sinfulness, they just arise in us. I had the thought this week, I don't think I like people who drive red cars. <laughs> Have you ever had a thought like that hit you? Like somebody in a red car did something stupid. I don't even like people who drive red cars. You ever have that thought? Something stupid coming in your mind? I don't like people who shop there. Look at all those people at Aldi. What are they doing over there? I've never gone into Aldi. Who shops at Aldi? I don't know if you're, if you're cheap or if you just eat weird stuff. Right? Tell the truth. Those kind of thoughts hit you all the time. How many Anybody drive a red car? How many drive? We can't be friends. Listen, it is so very important that when we're together, we learn how to love each other and get over all of the prejudices that arise in us on a regular basis. Only if you're living at home is somebody going to be able to do that to you, be close enough to you. Like, do you have anybody in your, in your life you've told, hey, make sure you're reading my Facebook posts, my social media posts, and let me know when I'm not loving. I just recently confronted a person who loves God but came across really unloving in their Facebook post. I'm not even on Facebook. Somebody had to show me that. I don't do anything on social media. Somebody had to show it to me, and I went, that's not who that person is. I know that's not who, how they want to come across. This is what I mean by being exposed. Who gets to see you without your clothes on? I mean that in the spiritual sense. You'll say, Lord, have mercy. We won't tape this one. We'll tape the next service. I won't say it like that. This is not the kind of home God was talking about. <laughs> Listen to what, uh, uh, remember that book I told you I was reading about the dance? This is what the writer says. And when you don't give other people power in your life, when you block them, he says, you're spiritually dead and not far from evil. It won't be long before you start doing evil things. Oh, sure, you won't call them evil. Alone, you won't call them evil. You'll not recognize them as evil on the surface of your awareness. Atomized, sequestered, isolated. You become the unquestioned master of your own shrinking little kingdom. Hermetically sealed containers of self and goodness goes there to die. Is that a great line or what? That's why God says, I need you to be like a home. That's why we're constantly calling you to get closer to connected than just walking in here on a Sunday morning because it's not God's image. You need to be able to be exposed because God constantly wants to work over our prejudices. Uh, there's a final image. Let me hit this one for you. It's actually my favorite image. And uh, Paul says, okay, so you're being, now that we're going to get into a building image, been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, means they're teaching, okay? And then, um, and Christ is the cornerstone. We'll come back to that. Now we're a whole building. Look at this. Now we're a whole building. You say, can you get any more intense or intimate than a home? Maybe 
What if you're being joined together, you're growing into a holy temple in the Lord, and look, it's not even done here. You're actually being built together into a dwelling place of God, built together. So this is the image of you're a bunch of stones. Each one of us is a stone. Now, this has us on top of each other, next to each other, as tight as we can possibly be. That's how close. We actually form a building itself. We are now not in a container. We are the container. All of a sudden, the image changes. It's even closer now. We're bricks side by side. And together, we form one thing that we couldn't form by ourselves. That's the image here. And this thing grows into a temple. It's something sacred and holy where God wants to live. You mean God's going to come live with us? We, he just said we were members of his household. Now he's saying he wants to live in us as a house. Us as a house. Not you individually. This is not individual language. This is a new humanity. He lives among us in a very unique, sacred kind of way. Now, what does that mean? Here's the only thing I really have time to focus on today. And it's in this text here. I want you to just see two words. I'm going to put them together maybe on the screen. I want you to see joined and grows. Because those are really the only two. Those are the main images here. It, it, whatever, he'll say, you've ne- this is really important spiritually. You, whatever it means to grow, got to be together. And what it means to be together is to grow. Because I know when we talk about spiritual growth, we talk about individual spiritual growth. You growing spiritually. You growing spiritually. It's impossible to do. I don't care who you are or what you believe. You cannot do it without this joining. Those are the two images together that you got to say, I really want to grow spiritually. I'll bet you do, but you don't want to be part of the community. Sorry. There's a very real limit to the amount of growth you can have. You say, why? What does that mean? And even, what does it even mean? Because whatever this is, it equals God living among us. God taking up residence in us. He's going to live there. So we're joined. As we're growing, he becomes, he becomes sort of more prominent in there. His presence and his power and the way he looks and the way he acts, he's there at home with us. And we're saying to God as we connect and grow, be at home in us. That's what we're saying to him. Now, what does that actually mean? Here's what I'm going to put it this way to you. An intimate relationship with God, him living among us, is directly tied to my intimate relationship with you. That's the reason. They cannot be disconnected. Who I am becoming, who we are becoming, as we relate to each other, is what makes him known and come alive in our house and who we are as a body. Now listen, God wants to be known, but he can be known in community. And so we play a part. If he wants to be known, we play a part. We play a part as we grow into making him known to the world. So you can't grow without 
losing independence. You got to be connected to grow. So you can't know yourself. We've already talked about that. You cannot know yourself apart from other people. And you can't know God apart from other people either. That's what he's saying in this text. You need to swallow that because it's powerful. So the deeper and closer you get to each other, the deeper and closer you get to God. You say, how does that work? Woodmore with other believers who seek to know and love God and who are growing and trying to get over their prejudices and growing in ways we haven't grown. And we're all together. It's amazing what happens as we interact to one another. We see God in each other in different ways. You say, how do I get to know God and see God? We see it in each other. He's living among us. As we join together, we see him better. We can't see ourselves well and we can't see him well unless we're together. When I'm with you, I see God in a way I can't see him alone. And then when there's more of us, we see God in multiple ways. Just went on a trip to India with a group of people. Many of them I had never had a conversation with. By the time we were done together, living together, serving together, I'm seeing all these different personalities, all these different issues, all these different Levels of growth all coming together, prompting me in ways I've never been prompted. Seeing God in ways I haven't seen him. It's powerful when you're with other people and you watch them love and serve and give and you're around them. And When I'm around Kirk, when we're there, Kirk is a guy who nothing is impossible. Are you one of the guys that goes, yeah, that'd be great, but we, we can't. How many of you are one of those kind of guys? That'd be great, but yeah, probably won't. That can be me. But when I'm around Kirk, he shows me because he's a nut. He's one of the craziest people I've ever met in my life. There's just nothing that can't be done. I was with a guy recently this week, hadn't seen in a while. I was telling him about India all in two and a half minutes. I got to, you know, hey, y'all, you know, maybe you could consider supporting a kid. He said, put me down for 10 for the year. I said, that's $10,000. Yeah, put me down. I was like, what, did you, what do you see when, when, when you see that in somebody? That spontaneous generosity. How many of you does it take God literally weeks to rip your hand open to give something away? But then you get around someone in the community and you go, look how generous that guy is. You don't think you see God in a different way? You don't think you see him in a different way? You ever been around somebody that's just so accepting and loving and humble and sweet to be around that when you're with them, you just leave sort of sweet and humble and you just can't, oh my gosh, I love everybody because that guy does. I was with one of those this week too. That's how we show God to each other. Do you want to see God? We see him in each other. It's not unlike my wife to say to me after we've been with some people, I really like who you are when we're with them. I like what they bring out in you. I haven't seen that in a while. You ever have that happen to you? Somebody brings something out in you that nobody else could, that no one else can. That's community. 
And when that gets brought out, somebody gets to see something about me that I didn't know maybe, that I didn't even know myself was in there. And then someone else gets to see God a little bit better because of it. That's what he's driving at here. C.S. Lewis, if I can go back to him, says, he works on us in all sorts of ways, but above all, he works on us through each other because men are mirrors. We're carriers of Christ to other men. You carry Christ with you, and when we get together, we get to see him in each other. You can't know him outside of others. That's a very, very powerful point. It takes a community to know you. If we have five people sitting in a room, all five of them will bring something out in me that, all, that only four of them couldn't. Do you see that? It takes a community to bring me out. How much more do you think it takes us to know God? How much bigger of a community do you think it takes to know God if it takes five to figure me out, to see all the facets of me? Do you understand that? That's why we got to be in community. And by the way, when this happens, what does John, what does John 17 say, by the way? I'm just, I'm reading through John, and I've just finished John 17, and he says again, you know, the world will never see me clearly unless they see me and you guys relating to each other. Here's Jesus saying, not even the world can see me clearly without you. Here's Jesus saying, I don't think I can be seen clearly without you. What an incredible statement. That you can't know each other. You can't know yourselves without each other. And the world can't know God without us knowing each other. How powerful is that? That makes us, Hillside, not only just a home that God has brought us to, but a model home. You know when you go in to buy a home? You go to the model home and you check it out and you see what's there. That's what the world gets to do when they come in here. Is come into the model home and see how it works. And go, I want, a, I want that kind of home. I want that kind of love, that kind of acceptance. How is all this possible? Let me close with this thought. I'm a, I'm a little late, but we're good, guys. No, nobody panic. You know, we got my panickers. I don't want any panickers. All right, here's how we're going to close this. So we're going to take communion here in a second. Here's, what, here's the great line in this text. We didn't get to really focus on. But I just want to focus on it for a second. I come back to this. The cornerstone of this whole thing is who? Jesus is the cornerstone. You know what the cornerstone is? It's the really, 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 really big central stone, first stone that sets the tone for all the other stones. That's what it is. Archaeologists have found and uncovered these sort of cornerstones, even in the Jerusalem temple, the imagery we're, we're using here. And, and they're, fifth, look at this, they're 55 feet long, 14 feet wide, and 11 feet high. 570 ton cornerstone. That stone gets in place, and you know what happens? It bears most of the weight, and it, and it determines the lie of the whole building. I mean, the line of the whole building. Now, there's two points I want to make here, and then we're going to take communion together. So keep these in mind, because this is what I want in your mind when we take communion. So you got this, this massive stone uh, that determines the line of all the other stones. So all the stones. So what if you're the stone that's way out here? Just woke up the cameraman. 
All right, what if, you, what if you're the line that's way out here, all right? And you can't see that stone because you've got other stones piled up and you're just a little stone right in here. I can look at the stones around me that are in line with that Jesus stone and this stone is all I need to help me know how I'm supposed to live my life. So when I'm close to you, if you're close to him, I know where I'm supposed to be, where I'm out of whack, where I'm stingy, where I'm angry, where I'm indifferent, where I'm uh, uh, eh, selfish. I can just look at you and I can't, I can't always see as him as clear. I can see you clear as day because you're right next to me. That's the first thing I want you to notice. I look to you and you look to me to figure out, am I online here? Am I being stingy, indifferent, angry? The cornerstone sets the lines. And by the way, Isaiah 28 says we'll be judged by that line. God says, behold, I'm the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line. That line extends all the way into eternity, he'll say. The whole world will be judged by that line. And righteousness, the plumb line. You want to be straight? Get next to somebody who's straight who's in line with Jesus. You see? That's the first thing. Align yourself. And the second thing is this. Something that Cornerstone did, our Savior. Psalm 118, look at what it says. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Remember how we started this? What it's like to be on the in and what it's like to be on the out. How do you get brought home? How did it get brought home after feeling rejected and isolated and lonely and no belonging? Well, according to this text, the cornerstone, remember what Jesus said, I came to my own and they rejected me. I was rejected. I became rejected so that you can be accepted. That's what Jesus did on the cross. I was rejected so that you become you could become accepted. That cornerstone that sits there is the perfect illustration of what it means to unite with people who didn't want him. But he loved them enough to bring them in. Do you see that? He was rejected for you. He was homeless for you. He was homeless so you could find a home. He became a foreigner. Oh, it's better. Do you know there's only one superior race? Or, I'm sorry, one inferior race? It's the human race. And don't you think the Trinity is a superior race? What did the superior race do with the inferior race? He came into it, died for it, loved it, and now has created a home in a new country and a new building for the world to see. That's us. Hillside, that ought to knock you Is that not amazing? That's what the cornerstone did for you. He became rejected so that you could be accepted. All right, we're going to take communion now. It's going to be the fastest communion you've ever had in your life because we're so late, it's ridiculous. 
Here's what you're going to do. You're going to get up from your seat. You're going to go get the elements. And don't be lallygagging. Get through there and get those things and then come forward. We're going to take it singing and, and praise God for what he's done for us. That song, right? After Ephesians 2, there's a whole new meaning. It's awakened us to a whole new. Listen, uh, right now, before you take this, before you put this in your mouth, you ask yourself, are there any big barriers, any country-sized barriers of hostility that I need to deal with in my heart? And then the second question I ask, am I close enough to this home to be exposed? Are my prejudices constantly being dealt with in this, in this community? Or am I just too far out for that to be happening? You gotta find a way in. You gotta move in. And then secondly, am I, am I close enough to people that they're looking at me to figure out whether or not they're stingy or angry or hostile or selfish or too comfortable? After what Christ has done and made, get to be the model home for the, for the world. Isn't that awesome? But remember what Paul said, because of the cross. Christ is the corn, the rejected stone. The rejected stone. To think of the damage I have done in my life because I never felt at home. joyfully forgives me. Father, all we can do this morning is say thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for letting us be a part of it. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer, it's in the corners. Otherwise, have a great week. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.